These are momentous days, aren't they? When you just hearing some of the, st- the testimonies this last week, and what God's doing, um, it's just really sort of encouraging to hear people coming to Christ, hear pe- people being filled with the Spirit, people being released in the Spirit, and just just great days to, to be alive. And uh, there's more. There's more. In fact, as we were just singing there, and it's it's still with me, so I'm going to say it. You know, there's no longer a place for fear. Um, I'm no longer a slave for fear. That doesn't mean that you never fear anymore, but you're no longer a slave to it. And um, and Paul wrote to Timothy because Timothy was becoming a slave of fear. And Paul had to write to him and say, look, Timothy, you don't need to be a slave to fear because God has given us a spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. And what we can do as God's people is say, no, I don't need to be a slave to the situation, to the fear in it. I can trust myself to God and to the power of the Holy Spirit. So that just might be for someone this morning, some particular situation you're facing, and you're, you're list, list, listening to words of the song, and you're think, thinking, well, I, I still feel fear. Yeah, you, you, we can still feel fear, but we're no longer a slave to it. It no longer has to drive us and be our master. Praise God. Okay, if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're continuing our series in encountering God in the church, encountering God in the church. I think it may come up on the screen, I don't know, maybe not. Uh, Having a problem, okay, Um, having a problem back there, no worries. I I will read it, um, but I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and so you may just want to sit and listen. Oh, there we are, It's, uh, it's up there, okay, so you can follow me. As I read through it, what I'm going to do is read. Yeah, I think I'll read all the way through and then I'll refer to it as we go along. It's good to, to hear the word of God. I'm so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and you're always following uh, the teachings that I passed on to you. But there's one thing that, that I want you to know the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving a head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. Wow. But since it's shameful for a woman to have her hair cut off, uh, to cut her hair or her head shaved, she should uh, wear a head covering, a covering for her head. And a man should not wear anything on his head when worshipping, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory. And woman reflects man's glory. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show that she is under authority." But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although, the first woman, for although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. I love Paul's reasoning. It's great, isn't it? Judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Is it, isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't, it, isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it's been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. The number of times I've been asked by ladies, should I wear a hat to church? Uh, Okay? 
or some kind of covering of some sort. Okay, we'll try and answer that one as we go through the message, um, but let's continue. Uh, But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is being done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others, and as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself, that on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So, anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And that is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we wouldn't be judged in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather together for the Lord's Supper, wait for one on each other. If you are really hungry, then eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves. When you meet together, together, I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it speaks not only to the generation in which it was written, but it speaks to us right down through the centuries. And Lord, sometimes we haven't made a good job of understanding it. Lord, as we have wrestled with our cultures, as we've wrestled with Scripture, sometimes we've come at your word from the wrong angle. And I pray that this passage, which has proved so difficult for so many, you would help us by your Holy Spirit this morning to hear you and to respond to what you are saying in it to us in our particular day and age in which we live. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So how good is your memory? How good is your memory? I'm amazed that there are some people who say, I can remember when I was right back to about five years old, or a little bit earlier than that. I think, really? Or is it just something that you have heard somewhere and you think it is your memory? How good is your remember? What is it to remember? For many today, it would be the recalling of an event, say a birthday, an anniversary, a particular article that they've read, a a book that they've read, a program, or a person, etc. Memory is amazing. And it's actually amazing what we can remember. And there's evidence to suggest, in case you're a little bit worried, uh, there's evidence to suggest that we retain far, far more than what we recall. Wow, 
I'm going to give you some amazing statistics. Because, you know, the brain that you have is still exceeds any computer that man has made. It exceeds it in capacity and it exceeds it in capability. We are awed by what computers can do today. But the computer that exists inside your cranium is far, far better than anything out there in the world. Do you know that there are approximately 1.1 trillion cells in your brain? And that there are 100 million neurons in the average human brain. That is colossal. I wonder if you've considered how fast your thoughts go. Well, let me tell you this. that The slowest speed that information passes through your brain is about 260 miles an hour. Whoa. That's colossal, isn't it? And And do you know we have mirror neurons that enable us to feel the pain of others, that enable us immediately to identify and feel others' pain. And we can store, this is, this is staggering, we can store 2.5 petabytes or a million gigabytes of information. Now, you have every reason to look at me blank and say, whatever that is, yeah, okay, I'll take it. Let me just try and explain it a little bit. If your brain worked like a digital video recorder... Uh, in a television, then 2.5 petabytes would be enough to hold 3 million hours of TV shows. And you would have to leave the TV running continuously for more than 300 years to use up all of that storage. (laughs) And turn to the person next to you and say to them, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. (laughs) Turn to them and say, you have, brother or sister, an amazing brain. (laughs) I wonder why so many of us are laughing when we say that. You have a staggering brain. It's amazing, isn't it? Fearfully and wonderfully made. Wow, what potential's there? What potential? I, I just sensed, when, just before I came out this morning, as I was just reflecting back on this, that maybe there's a particular word for someone, that you are facing some situation, I don't know whether it is, whether it's a course you're looking at or, or whatever, something, and you're feeling, I can't do it. I can't do it. You're writing yourself down, and God would say to you this morning, I've given you a brain that has amazing capacity. I've given you a facility to do what I have called you to. Don't be afraid. Go for it. So, okay, you can now, every one of us can go away and and think, wow, what an amazing brain I have. What tremendous capacity. That's staggering, isn't it? Now, in the Bible, we're called to rem- to, the call to remember is, is not a mere recollection of people or events, but it's actually a vibrant, powerful, participatory concept or idea where, in doing so, we recalibrate our lives according to what we are remembering. That's why it's good to read the Scriptures. That's why it's good to engage with the story of God in the Bible, the story that interacts with our humanity and, and see how that goes between man and God. And, and as we do so, God can speak to us afresh in our day and age. 
And so here we are in the book of Corinthians, and Corinthians is about the church. It's about the the people of God as the the temple of God. We've heard that a few times, the temple of the living God, the place where God dwells, where we encounter God. It's not a place where we go through lots of religious ritual and pretend he's there and he's not. It's a place where we encounter God in and through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. There were many temples in Corinth offering worship to different so-called deities, But they, says Paul, they, you, the church of the living God, are the one true temple of God, the one true dwelling place of God by his spirit. Turn to the person next to you and say, did you realize that you are the dwelling place of God this morning? Now turn to them and say, did you realize that we are the dwelling place of God? (laughs) because that is what scripture teaches they've been so used to the dwelling place of God being in in a tent in a tabernacle they've been so used to the dwelling place of God being in a physical building and then in the gospels through the grace of God in Jesus Christ something everything has changed the dwelling place of God was God incarnate in Jesus Christ and then Jesus gives his life as, as, as he offers himself, the priest and the sacrifice. And he, he dies for our sins. And, and now the declaration is that we, the people of God, are the temple of God. Personally and corporately, we are the temple of God, the place where God chooses to dwell. As such, they were expected, therefore, to be different, to conduct themselves personally and corporately as those who belong to and were indwelt by the very presence of God himself. And that is the way Paul writes in this book, that God dwells in you individually. God dwells in you corporately. Therefore, there should be something that evidences that fact, that distinguishes you from the temples that are all around Corinth and distinguishes you from the rest of humanity in the way that they live out their lives. You see, they were not an abstract group of individuals doing their own thing, doing some kind of fluid church where church is just you and me just having a coffee in Starbucks and say, well, two or three are gathered in my name. That's church. That's not the Bible view of church. The the Bible view of church is the gathered community of those who've been redeemed in a particular place for a particular purpose. And they were a believing, committed community, learning to listen to God and do life together with God. You and I need one another. Turn to the person next to you or around you and say, I need you. (laughs) You see, the enemy likes to isolate us from the church and says, you can do it on your own. You don't need them. You can't. We need one another. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. The letters were written to such communities. And when you read the Bible, particularly the letters that are written to churches, bear that in mind. Because if you read them from an individual perspective, you won't get the message that is being written there. And in the day and age when individualism is rampant, that's why we believe that membership is important. Why belonging by why being committed is being important. A manager of a football team would have no, a, a, a team of no use whatsoever if he just had a group of people who decided to turn up one day and not the next. 
who decided to turn up for training on one day and then, then not for the game. If he didn't know who was committed to that team, he can only work with the team that he has. And so there must be that sense of commitment. And that, that's what you find in, in the New Testament scriptures in relation to the church. So having addressed various issues to do with their lives and relationships and how God is to be known and glorified in and through them, and we need to take note of when there is repetition because we need to hear those things particularly that are being restated because Paul does not believe in wasting words. And so we need to sit up and take note when we find things uh, being repeated, certain warnings, etc. And so here he is, he's, he's, he's been talking this way, addressing their, their lives and their relationships and how God is to be known and glorified in and through them. And then in these next four chapters, he's talking about their gathering. What happens when they come together as the people of God? And it's interesting that when you read, if you've got different versions of the Bible as I have, and I always recommend that you read more than one version, it just helps you to get to grips with the word, helps you to, to, to meditate on it, to, to study it, etc., to hear what God is saying. But if you've got several versions of the Bible, you notice there's a challenge going on here. What do you do with the first verse? And so you'll find that some translators put it with the previous chapter and some translators put it with this particular chapter. And you look at the commentators and they all argue in different ways about whether it should belong with the first chapter or the next chapter. The reality is that our Bibles originally didn't even have chapters. So it's a non-starter, isn't it? It belongs to both the chapter that precedes it and the chapter that follows it. And it's an interesting statement, isn't it? He says there, I'm so glad, uh, sorry, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Now, I think we have a, a slide to go up there that says, are you familiar with this? The, the, the bumper sticker, the statement that is so familiar where people so often say, oh, don't follow me, follow Jesus. Don't follow me, follow Jesus. And what we mean by that is, actually, my life isn't that much good, really. Uh, and it's, it's below par, so don't look at me, look at Jesus. And yet, what Paul says, he says, is imitate me. You see, that statement sounds very spiritual, it sounds very humble. You know, I, 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 I'm not the person to look to in this, just look to Jesus. And yet, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, that's a challenge for every one of us this morning. In our own personal witness, wherever we are, in the workplace, in the home, amongst our relations. We should be living such lives that adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ that whereby we can say to people, whereby we demonstrate to people the reality of what Jesus has done for us. Yes, we're still works in process, but his grace is amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely staggering. So Paul says, imitate me. He doesn't say, don't follow me, follow Jesus. So we're all called to be like our Father. Somewhere else he says that in Ephesians. You know, that we're to imitate the Father, to be like our Father. We've been predestined to be like Jesus. Wow, I'm, going, I'm glad God didn't say, I'm going to save you but leave you as you are. Because that would be the opposite. To be predestined to be like Jesus, wow, what a vision for my life. What a vision for your life that Father God wants you to be like the elder son, to be like Jesus Christ. That's not being all religious. That's being full of vital, real, dynamic, 
life because Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. Didn't he? Didn't he? Didn't he? Yes. He said, I am come that you might have life. And what did he say? I am come that you might have it more abundantly. Who's in for an abundance of life? Oh, there's a few. Who's in for an abundance of life? I should be seeing every hand there. Okay? So there's an offer of life in Jesus Christ. And and knowing this Jesus is not about getting all religious, but it's about having a relationship with God that is real and dynamic and satisfying and fulfilling and adventurous and and so on. Wow. Isn't that good? Yes. It's good. We really ought to be more excited than we are, hadn't we? We used to sing a song years ago, I get so excited, Lord, every time I realise I'm forgiven. And we English, we are very difficult to get excited, except when a football team scores a goal or somebody wins in the rugby, isn't that right? Then we say that's what we get excited about. Well, we should get excited about Jesus, shouldn't we? He is a wonderful, wonderful saviour. So we're called to be like Jesus and we're called to exhibit him through our lives to the rest of the world. And then they say, what is it about you? What is it that you have got? Who is it that you know? So let's dig a bit further into this passage, because I'm sure, ladies, you're really wondering whether I should have come in with a hat this morning. <laughs> okay? Um, the big question that I don't know how many times I've been asked, does, should I be wearing a hat to church? And it's been interesting, isn't it? Those of you who've known anything of church life, I mean, there have been, you know, big hats. There have been those of more rebellious generations who've suddenly the hat's got smaller and smaller, so it just, I've got a head covering, you know. And I've known hats to be hung in the porch of a church so that when you come in, if you've forgotten your hat, there's one there for you. And it was a very unstylish beret. (laughs) That exhibits something of my age, doesn't it, (laughs) saying that. Um, But I'm not as old as you think I am, okay, so just to halt you before you go too far down that route. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so what, what do we make of this particular passage? What are we to understand by this particular passage? And, and so here in verse 3, he says, so he's, he says in verse 2, I'm so glad you always keep me in your thoughts and you're always following my teaching. So he is encouraged by them that they are in many, many ways listening to what he has said and following the teachings and the traditions that he has passed on. And then he says, but. When people say but, it really just begins to change things, doesn't it? He says, but. And one thing we want to notice is here is he's now going to move into some sense of admonition. Do you know, if you and I are to grow well in Christ, we need both encouragement and admonition. Yeah? And we don't like the second one, do we? But we'll take up the first one, lock, you know, lock, stock and barrel. We'll have as much as we can get. But, you know, if all we ever get at the end of the day is encouragement, we'll just become smothered and gooey. It will not be real life. And yet, on the other hand, if we just get admonition we end up stifled and stodgy. And, and so we need both you know, encouragement and admonition in our lives if we are to really be who God wants us to be. And so he brings a, a word of admonition here. You see, number one is that their lives were blurring the distinction, as their lives were blurring the distinction between them and the world, so also were their meetings. That's the context of what is going on here. And context is key. Context is everything. If we don't understand the context, we'll read what it says wrongly. So 
there was a blurring. The men in, in covering their heads were behaving like the pagan priests in pulling their toga up over their head when practicing their pagan rites. The women, or more particularly it should be translated wives as the ESV does here, were behaving like those who were available at the pagan ritual feasts and there to provide sexual pleasure. They were saying that they were available. They were sending, therefore, the wrong message to the world. And so what Paul is concerned about is that in this newfound freedom that they have in Jesus, they're behaving in, in many ways like what's going on down in the local temple or in various places where they're going through those pagan practices. And he says this isn't right. And this is not a good witness to the world. So that is the context of head coverings in this particular passage. And uh, we want to notice here too that he affirms the role of both men and women. And so often this is read read in a negative way, uh, as to a preventative way. But he affirms the role of both men and women here. But he wants that done in a way that is a proper witness to the world. He wants their their, their gatherings together to truly reflect who God has made them to be in Christ. And then secondly, you have the blurring of the male-female identity. So you get Paul very definitely saying here, but there is one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And he brings that out, and down in verse 7, a man shouldn't wear anything on his head when worshipping, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory. And then he talks about authority just a little bit further down, which we will be coming to in just a moment. But what he was concerned again, again about again was the sense of the blurring of sexual identities. Now, we're aware of that in the age in which we live. I, I've got an article here that I found in the paper uh, just yesterday. The gender revolution is just another con. And you can go onto Facebook and you can select all sorts of identities for your particular gender. And it's interesting that the way this lady has written her, in today's fluid world, you can be a he, she, or Z. I think that's how you pronounce it, X-E. That's more likely to leave young people confused than liberated. The more categories there are, the more there will need to be. It is not the answers. answer, brothers and sisters. And that's a challenge for us because we are called to love everyone. We're called to demonstrate the love of Christ. And we're living in a crazy, mixed-up world. And Paul is concerned here that there is this blurring of the male-female identity. And he says, he goes back and he says, look, man has been made in the image of God. Humanity has been made in the image of God. In the image of God made he them, male and female. So he's pressing that home. They will be aware of the Old Testament scripture and he's pressing it home, the importance of the fact that God has made humanity in his image. Not in the image that psychiatrists and psychologists and any other person who might like to add something else to the category, we have been made male and female. It is the enemy who likes to distort those categories because it breaks down what God has established. And so we we just need to be aware of that. But, you know, this is part of why the gospel is needed because we are a broken people. We're all broken in different ways. But God is in the habit of forgiving and making new. 
Hallelujah. And restoring his original purposes to us. Praise God for that. And if you notice too there, he bases it on the Trinity, on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This relationship that exists in the Trinity is that we are made in the image of God, in the image of a Trinitarian God who is three persons, one in three and three in one, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we could spend a lot of time in thinking about that, but I'll put that out there uh, for your own thoughts and meditation. So the call is to remember who you are. Remember who you are. Another aspect under this first point is the aspect of authority. Or because of their newfound freedom in Jesus, perhaps for some their abandonment of it. We don't need these structures anymore. We are free. We can do what we want. We can act how we want. And authority is a a big issue here. But Paul makes it very clear both here and elsewhere that loving God-ordained authority still exists. And that behavior that undermines or dishonors God-given roles uh, and order, both in the home, the church, or society, is not appropriate or in our best interest. Whether it's wives against husbands, children against parents, civilians against governmental authorities, etc. God has established order. There is order within the Trinity. And he has made us in his image and he has established an order in society. Now, tragically, that order because of sin has been abused. So when we think of authority, we very often think of authoritarianism. Somebody who loves power, who loves influence and just just likes to use that for their own end. And then when we think of submission, we think of the doormat kind of mentality where walk all over me, do what you like. And both images are wrong. That's why we need to go back to the Bible and discover what authority and submission is all about. You see, authority is not about the self-centered, self-serving exercise of power, uh, but leadership that takes care to serve the needs of others. It's not about serving self. It is about how best we can serve the needs of others. So husbands, it is about how best we can serve the needs of our wives and children. It applies in all sorts of spheres and we could extract that and take that out in different ways. It is not about domination. It is not about authoritarianism. It's leadership that just loves to live in love and demonstrate love by caring for those who are in its responsibility. And then number two, remember who you are. One family. Second point, remember who you are. So in in verses 17 to 22, he he picks up on the fact that there are divisions among them. So he says, I I can't praise you for it sounds as if more harm than good is, is done when you come together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval may be recognized. But when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. And so we go on. So 
here they, here they were, redeemed, possessing the same spirit, and yet they were behaving in a way that was not being an effective witness to the world. The old lines of division, whether race or education or social gradings, upper, middle, lower, rich or poor, etc., should no longer exist. They belong to the old order that has been judged in Jesus Christ and is passing away. Hallelujah. Because such divisions do not help humanity. Isn't it amazing how we love things like Downton Abbey? I wonder why we love such things. Because of all the power plays that go on there between those upstairs and those downstairs, how many people are, would you dare admit you're sad that it's finished? I'm like, oh, there's one hand at least. Oh, there's another and another. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it, how we love that kind of drama where, you know, you've got the upstairs and the downstairs and, 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 and how someone from downstairs marries someone from upstairs and, and all the rest of it. And, and you see, <laughs> that's part of the brokenness of our world, isn't it, those stories? They reflect the brokenness of our world. And, and those kind of power plays were going on here in Corinth. There were the rich and there were the poor. I think we've got a picture of a house um, here somewhere. Have we? There we go. And so there, there were the rich and the poor. And because of the nature of the things and the spread of the gospel, it was very often wealthy people who could accommodate uh, the, the newfound churches that were being established throughout the area. And what was happening was that the, those who would, um, the wealthy people would meet in the triclinium, and those who were poorer uh, would meet in, in the atrium, which, looking upwards, was open to all the elements. And it, it used to happen in stages. So, of course, you, you couldn't proceed or even be with those who were in the triclinium. Uh, they, had to, they were there, uh, and they were richer, they were more educated, etc., and potentially had better food as well, but they would eat before the others, and they could only, uh, the others could only join in when they had finished their meal. And the way it was done, this could take some time. And, and so all sorts of abuse was going on here. And, and Paul says, this isn't what church is about. There shouldn't be these kinds of divisions that are, are taking place. As in the world then, there were demarcations and distinctions of class. So when they gathered in the homes of the wealthy who had the space to accommodate them, uh, we had this kind of separation that going on uh, where there would uh, be the separation of them practically and differences in times over eating and so on. And Paul says, this, is, this isn't right. This isn't good. They were one people, one family. The old lines that had separated them were now gone in Jesus Christ. I, I, I love church history, but I'm staggered sometimes when I, I visit church history. And what I mean is when I've been to old places, and I, I've seen this kind of thing has taken place. I can remember being in uh, the John Wesley's famous chapel in, in, in Bristol. And it's a fascinating place to go because God was moving powerfully. Very, very powerfully by his spirit. And there were people from the mines who were coming to know Jesus Christ. And people being gathered together. But you go into that chapel, and it's amazing. I've stood in Wesley's pulpit and looked down from Wesley's pulpit, been in his study, and just to be there and sense the divine purpose. But as I've stood there and I've looked out, I felt saddened because... There are the, the boxed rows where certain people sat. 
and there are the benches where those who didn't have those qualifications sat. I think great that there was such a work of grace, but sad that they did not see what they were doing by their very practice. It is the enemy who likes to separate us out into groups, whether socially, educationally, materially, or whatever. None of that should exist within the church of Jesus Christ. The story of Mahatma Gandhi is a fascinating story, and you may be familiar with it, but uh, after reading the Bible and the life of Jesus, he was eager to explore actually becoming a Christian. And so he, had, he decided to attend a particular church service. Uh, I believe it was in this country. And when he, he reached the door, the church elder asked, where, where do you think you're going, Kafir? There's no room for Kafirs in this church. Get out of here or I'll have my assistants throw you down the steps. That's a tragic indictment upon the church. Absolutely tragic. But you see, and in a minute we'll come to it, that's what happens when we don't keep Jesus central. When we don't understand who we together are as the people of God. It's very easy for us to form into to little cliques. And here's a challenge. Here's a challenge for, for you this morning, for us. You know, when we go to coffee, do we always talk to the same people? In a big church, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because you think, oh, I don't know them. But you can actually get to know them, or partly get to know them, can't you? Can't know everything about, what is it, 200 people or well, some people might actually think in a brain capacity, maybe we can. Maybe I need to go back and think on that one again. You think of those guys. Have you ever seen those guys who have decks of cards and, and they muddle them all up, several decks of cards, and then they give them to them, they remember them, and they come boom, 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 boom. That's the power of the brain. Wow, maybe we can remember and do more than we imagine. But just, in, just, just for our encouragement, be encouraged to... Step out the side of the circle of those that you know and to engage with others in the life of the church. I, I've, I've sometimes, I, I've, over the years, one of the biggest challenges, I've, I've sometimes known that visitors have come in and I've not managed to get to them and I, I've said to somebody who I actually saw sitting in their row, oh, did you speak to that person sitting in your row? And they said no. And I felt shocked. We should be able to do that, shouldn't we? There's somebody in the row that you've not spoken to. We need to make people feel welcome. We need to have that sense of family. You know? Oh, he looks fearsome. So what? <laughs> looks as though they've got problems. They may need prayer. We need to learn to engage. If, if we want to keep growing as a community of God's people, we are, need to to work at doing that kind of stuff. We can't have any lines of cliqueiness or division in any way whatsoever. We need to be looking out for one another. We need to be looking out for those who are visiting. Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, 29, you are all equally sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Or translated in a voice, it puts it like this. It makes no difference whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a slave or a freeman, a man or a woman, because in Jesus, the anointed one, the liberating king, you are all one. So remember who you are. 
Turn to the person next to you and say, remember who you are. Remember who you are. So that's remember who you are as an individual. Remember who you, who we are together as the people of God. And then the final point is the last part of this chapter, remembering Jesus Christ. Remembering Jesus Christ. And we can think here that Paul is going off on a, on a tangent somewhere and he's just teaching them about the Lord's Supper. He's not so much teaching about them about the Lord's Supper, but he's now outworking in, a, in another way something of what he has been saying. So the context of the remembering here is important. It's not simply his death and resurrection, though that is important. It's about who Jesus is and how he humbled himself and gave his life for them, for all of them, those in the triclinium and those in the atrium, for all stratas of society, how he gave his life for them. And we're reminded in Scripture, and we could run through a a, a number of Scriptures, but we don't have the time, but we're reminded how that he came as the servant king. He came not to be served. He was co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit, and yet he takes on himself the form of human flesh. He humbles himself, and he comes here to serve. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, Paul says very simply, to Timothy he says, remember Jesus Christ. Oh, they they are powerful, powerful words. Remember Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 5 and 4, track it through to verse 11. And 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, brothers and sisters, he became poor, so that by his poverty you should become rich. Wow. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are rich in him. Though he was God, it didn't stop him taking on human flesh and coming and up to his disciples with their dirty, smelly feet, with a bowl of water and a towel over his arm and washing their feet. The creator, the sustainer of the world, stoops down to his knees and he washes the feet of those that he has created. This is our God, the servant king. And this is what Paul is talking about when he he moves into this passage about the Lord's Supper. He's, He's wanting them to reflect on Jesus, who Jesus is, how Jesus lived, how Jesus served, how Jesus died, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And so in it, the call is to love, it's to welcome, it's to honor, it's to serve all equally without reference to station in life, whether it's education or ethnicity or nationality or work whatsoever. We could go on, but time is gone. We need to remember Jesus. And in remembering Jesus, we remember how far we ourselves have fallen because Jesus came for us, whatever part of society that we come from. 
Every one of us needs Jesus Christ. I have nothing whatsoever to claim before God, and neither do you. And so it puts us all on an equal footing. Remember Jesus. Turn to the person next to you and say to them as you go into this week, remember Jesus Christ. So, let's stand, shall we? Time has has gone. Let me me ask you, because it is a challenging word. Number one, what kind of life are you living? What kind of life are you living? You are the... If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you are the temple of the living God. Is your life adorning the gospel? Or are you excusing yourself somewhere? Watching something you shouldn't be. Behaving in ways that would be contrary to the nature of Christ. In this moment, you can deal with that. Do you know who you are as a body? Do we fully appreciate the fact that those who stand next to us in Jesus are our brothers and sisters? Whatever their history, whatever part of society, whatever education, whatever material things they may have or not, they're part of our family. And that's the type of family that God wants to build. He doesn't want to build it around one particular people group or one particular nationality. It may be that you have subconsciously fallen into some kind of cliqueiness where you always meet with the same individuals. Maybe there's someone here, you, you look down on certain people. Maybe there are others who who look up and you you don't need to. In Jesus, we're all on the same level. (laughs) Wonderful. Maybe some just this morning, you just need to just remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this wonderful word of God which you inspired Paul to write so many years ago. Thank you that it is a word that crosses the generations, speaks to us in our age. Lord, help us to be the people of God that you call us to be, both individually and corporately, as a temple of the living God, those redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, bought at such high price. Help us to... Receive your love personally and to live in it. Help us, Lord, to share your love corporately. And be no respecter of persons, even as you are not. And help us, Lord, to go out from here to show that love to the world at large that as yet doesn't know you. So, gracious God, we we bless you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit,
Help us to image you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.